All right, well, good morning, Salem. It's great to be here with you guys this morning on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, right? Uh, beautiful, beautiful word. I hope that uh, today and as we dive or continue to dive into Jeremiah and in the story as it continues to unfold, uh, that, that that word will ring even more truth as we, as we kind of see this tie between Jeremiah 29 and, and Palm Sunday, the triumphal uh, entry. So glad you guys are here. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem. Welcome to you. Welcome to everyone joining us on online uh, as well. We're glad you guys are here. So um, you guys probably know, uh, many, many of you probably know that I'm a golf enthusiast, and so these last couple of days I've been watching uh, the Masters, because uh, it happens once a year, and that's a sweet time for me. I love that. Um, and uh, at the end of yesterday, um, you know, this may be a spoiler alert for some of you, but if you haven't watched yesterday's round, like, come on. Um, there's this guy named Scotty Scheffler who's in the lead. Uh, he's in first place by like five strokes which is just crazy. I mean, it's just insanely good. And so at the end of the day, you know, you're watching this unfold. Um, you, I, for me, I thought, man, I just didn't expect this. This is not the way that I expected it to go. And it, and it made me kind of reflective as I've thought through my life, because really what life is, is the string of stories uh, in life, one after the other, where we as humans, uh, in our lack of omniscience, Okay, that's, we fall short in the category, uh, amongst all categories, really, we fall short, um, right, is that as we, we come into these moments, we go, huh, I did not expect that, right, this is the way that life oftentimes unfolds. Uh, so I was thinking about a couple from, uh, from my younger years. Um, one, I remember when I was in middle school, and uh, the, whole ch- the whole school was gathered uh, together, and we're sitting in the gym, and they're doing like a drawing for some type of a prize, and I leaned over to my buddy, and he goes, man, I never win these things, and I'm like, me neither, this is, this is silly, it's a waste of time, and they're like, Seth Dunham, and I was like, wow, I did not expect that. And so I went down, and I got a notebook, you know, that was the prize, so... Um, <laughs> Dates me a little bit, which, by the way, I feel like in, with inflation, that's like a computer today. So um, <clears throat> I feel like somebody in rural Nebraska owes me a computer. Um, so that's one, right? I remember in high school uh, when I hit my very first home run, and I thought, man, like, that was unexpected. Like, it was just, you know, out of the ordinary. So that was unexpected. I remember the, the moment uh, in my life when Nikki first walked into the room, and I went, ooh, that was unexpected. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> um, right? And so, like, there was that. I remember when Nikki and I bought our first home, and we moved everything in, and we were super excited, and we, were, we unloaded everything from the, the trucks and trailers and got it into the garage, and I went to, like, like, to hit finish on my day, and I hit the garage door close, and I was like, here we go. We're starting our journey. Uh, good for us. Good for Seth and Nikki. And the garage door goes, kum, kum, kum. And it's like a 45-degree angle, you know, down on the ground. I was like, welcome to owning a home, you know? I did not expect that, you know? Um, and, uh, and, you know, for me, if you, if you don't know uh, a little bit about my story, is that I'm adopted. And so, so for many, many years as I was growing up, you know, I was always thinking about what life was going to look like married. And, and, uh, and I always thought, gosh, like part of the way that God's going to redeem this story in my life uh, is that, you know, he's going to give me a child that, that looks like me. Uh, and when, when Nikki and I found out that that was not the case, it was very painful and very hard. And I thought to myself, wow, that's, that was not what I expected, 
You know, and even when the doctor, you know, told us that, that it wasn't working, I mean, my response was this kind of this visceral, like, just implosion, and I actually ended up taking a couple of days off of work, and I just, I literally, I crawled onto the couch, and I didn't move for two days, and I just cried. And it was painful. It was incredibly hard, because it's not what I expected, right? Um, and, you know, and then you fast forward many, many years, and then God brought vindication to that story by allowing us, which was his plan A and always a part of our plan, but God's plan A, he allowed us to get Eden. And Eden, you know, joined our family. And I thought, wow, that's not what I expected. This is way better than anything I could have imagined. This is so good, right? And, and so really life is this collection of stories that are strung together where we, being short in our omniscience category, we basically say, wow, I didn't expect that. And you say, why? Why is it that we, that we didn't expect that? Well, here's why. Because we're not writing the story. <laughs> right? Because if, if, if I was writing the story, and if I somehow had magical ability with a pen to write something and it came true, my life would have been very different. Because I would have written the story entirely different. Right? And yet God says, no, this is my story. You're a minor character in it, and I'm going to write it the way that I want to. <laughs> right? And so this is the case, right? And so for us, as we grow older, as we become adults, and as we move into maturity, we learn more and more at the end of every day that we lack control. We have some control in life, but we do not have full control in life. It's a simple, simple truth. But it's a fundamental thing. It's important for us. It resonates very much in the human heart to know that if I don't have control, that somebody does, right? And that's God. You know, that's what we believe. Um, and, and if you were to take everything in Jeremiah, all of the stuff in Jeremiah, and if you were to wrap all of the good stuff up into one single verse, can you guess which verse it would be? Can you guess? Jeremiah 29, 11. Here's what it says. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Right? And in the midst of uh, trying times, or in the midst of any times, you read this, and, and maybe you're like me, because whenever I read this, it doesn't matter when, I read this and I kind of get these warm fuzzies, right? Because I realize that I'm not in control, God is in control, and it's only him who can ultimately do the things in my life. This is not my story, it's his story. And so there's something that resonates intrinsically powerfully in my soul to know that if not me, somebody is in control, and that is ultimately God, Right? But here's the problem with this verse, is that we in our American Christian culture have tended to take that verse and to rip it out of its context, and what we do is we posterize it. And what I mean by that is that we take this, this fluffy, nice sentence, and we put it on a poster with a, a smiling kitten, and it's like they put it on the wall or the ceiling when you're at the dentist, when everything is horrible and wrong, and that's supposed to comfort you. Right? And we look at this and we go, okay, like I should be comforted. Right? And, we, and we make it about the self and my happiness and my, and my future. And the reality is, is that when I take this, pull this out of context, I miss what God is actually saying. Because this true, everything that I just read is true, but without the context, it's misleading. Right? The mis it's, it's very much misleading. Because what God is doing in the book of Jeremiah, there's, there's passages and pieces of hope, right? But, but, but what God is dealing with in, in Jeremiah is the hearts of his people. And it's, it's very deep, dangerous, and dark stuff. 
You know, it's this idolatry at the root. It's this replacement or exchange of the, you know, the glory of our creator for the creator. We, we exchange God for much lesser things, and that's what rules our life, and, and that's the story ultimately that we're writing is around the things that we want to happen, Right? That's, what, that's, the way that this, that's the way that this is. This is the way what, what Jeremiah or God is dealing with in his people through Jeremiah. And so we have to remind ourselves of the context. So if, if you've got a Bible, uh, join me in Jeremiah chapter uh, 29, verse 1. We'll remind ourselves of the context here. Here's what it says. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile. Uh, to the priests, to the prophets, uh, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalworkers had all departed from Jerusalem. Okay? Right? So, so if we remind ourselves of the context here, right, what happened is that there's this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is, is the ruler of, you know, the world's most powerful military at the time uh, in, in the, the area of what's called Babylon, right? And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in, in all of his strength and might, he brings his army through and he eventually confronts Jerusalem. And he, what he does is he lays siege to the city, which if we were to come back to, if we were to come back to this for uh, a moment, so um, this, by the way, uh, is kind of like, like the, the, oh, the eastern side of Old Testament uh, Jerusalem, okay, so it would kind of continue over here, but I don't have space for that, so, and over here is the Mount of Olives, uh, and this, this big, like, rectangle here would be the temple, and so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he comes, you know, with his army, uh, and he ultimately lays siege to Jerusalem. And it's a many months type of a thing. It just goes on and on and on, and it's war and it's battle. Uh, and eventually, you know, the, the wall is broken. Uh, in Babylon, these Babylonians enter into the city and they basically ruin and destroy the entire city, including uh, the temple, including their homes, including all parts of the wall. I mean, the city is just left in utter ruin right? Uh, And it's this incredibly painful thing. And and unfortunately, guys, this is not hard for us to imagine, because all you have to do is go on YouTube or or whatever and look and and watch these painful videos of what happens to Ukraine, right? It's just hard to imagine, to wrap our minds around, and yeah, it's kind of happening, you know, in a similar fashion, but, but albeit differently. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he obviously comes in, and then what he does is he, he puts a king, this kind of puppet king in place named Zedekiah, and basically this is, you know, he says, you do whatever I tell you to do, and, and, and life will go good with you. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar then takes all of the people that he wants back to Babylon, out to the east, which is about uh, over a thousand miles away, and he carries with him 10,000 people from Jerusalem. 10,000 people, right? And who he carries um, are kind of two sets of people. He carries the people who, anybody who's in a position of authority that uh, would rebel against him, he's like, I want them, you know, next to me where I can keep an eye on them. So they're coming with me. And then he also takes anybody who's really good at anything, 
right? If you're a metal worker, if you're a craftsman or whatever, he says, you're coming with me because you're going to help build my empire. And he leaves the rest of the people, including Jeremiah, by the way, in the city heap, the ruins of Jerusalem. And this is the context. As these people are way over here, thousands of miles away, Jeremiah writes this letter and sends this letter to these people. And, you know, later on, we know that God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your good, for you to prosper, for you to grow, not for evil, not for harm, right? And you're like, God, like, <laughs> like this seems contrary to the message or the, it seems contrary to the circumstances that we are actually are actually in, right? And the story continues. If you look at verse four, right? And so, because it'd be be really easy for the people to blame Nebuchadnezzar, but God, because he's a God of character and he's perfect and he's holy and all this stuff, he he takes credit. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the words that came from Jeremiah in this letter uh, are the words of God. And he says, hey, I know that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who took you, but by the way, I am the author of the story. So this isn't Nebuchadnezzar, this is me. This is what I am doing in this world, right? I sent you into exile, right? This is the story he wants us to hear. And so for us, whether, you know, you're a you know, person in this story or you're a person, reader in 21st century, right, it's hard for us as people to wrap our minds around the present circumstances, uh, especially when it comes to the sovereignty of God, right? Why? Because so oftentimes the story that's unfolding in front of us is not the story that we would have written. And we say, wow, I didn't expect that. It's not the way that I would have written it. This is not the way that the story is supposed to go. And yet God says, this is the story that I am writing. I'm the one who has put you here. This is me. I'm the author of this story. And so for us as readers, we need to ask this powerful question. What is it that God wants us to hear from the story? What is it that God wants to hear? Now, obviously, within the context of this story, being accurate to this story, but how does this story apply to today? How does this story apply to you and me in the midst of the chaos and the confusion and the conflict of the world that we live in today? So, you ask that, right? What, do we, what does God want us to learn? And here's what God says through Jeremiah in verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. I'm just going to stop there. Uh, if, you were, if you were them in their shoes, um, would you say, yep, that makes sense? No. Right? You would say, this, gosh, this is not what I expected. Right? For, for a whole host of reasons. God, these are the people that, that just destroyed our way of living. This is our very life. Not only that, they destroyed the temple, which is our place of worship, which is all about you. God, what are you going to do about this? Like, you should bring conflict. You should bring victory. You should bring vindication, right, to these people. Let us do that. Create an environment. He says, build houses and live in them. And what he's starting is this communication to say, you're going to be there for a while. So settle in. You're going to need a roof over your head. Believe me, trust me. God says, I know what I'm doing, and I know the plan. I know how it unfolds. It's going to take a while, so build a house. But not only that, you're going to need some food. So what does he say? 
right? He says, plant gardens and eat their produce. And more than that, he goes on. He says, I want you to, you know, enjoy relationships and community and build it. He says, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters, right? And this whole result, this, this end goal is that you would multiply and do not decrease. Don't decrease, increase. You know, see, you look at this and you go, okay, if that's the case, God, why didn't you just like tell us that like back in Jerusalem? And God's like, well, there's this thing called the human heart and yours was pretty bad. I had to deal with it. I had to work on your heart. This is what I needed to do. But don't miss that in the midst of God's judgment, in the midst of God's wrath, God's concern for his kingdom is always about growing his family. Don't decrease, increase. I want you to grow. I want you to be healthy, right? This is about my story, my kingdom, and I want that family to flourish. Now, I don't know what God has been doing in these last couple years of the pandemic, and so this is not, again, this is not a prophetic voice or anything like that, but I do wonder, you know, because if you look at the trends of the national church, like we've kind of gone from big and we've kind of crunched down a little bit, haven't we? We've, we've crunched down, and this happens all across the board. And it's like there's, there's been this, this bit of a crunch. And I don't know, but my hope and prayer is that what God is allowing to do in this time is that so that he can grow his church and expand it, right, for the sake of his kingdom, that people would come into that family who have never been in that family. And that's, and that's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so what we're going to find in these texts is that, that there's, I think, three kind of heart shifts that we need to make in order to get on board with God's plan. It's, it's, it's for us to say, okay, I need to acknowledge that this is not my story, this is God's story. So how does my heart need to shift? Shift number one, I need to stop thinking like a refugee and I need to start thinking like a resident. This is what God's saying. He's like, I put you in this. Like, you are here, right? This is, this is what I am doing. This is a new reality that we need to adjust to. Like, how many of you were like me? The pandemic hit, and you're like, one month, it'll be done. Two months, it'll be done. Three, three months, four, four, six, right? <laughs> and it keeps going. And here, we're still dealing with the effects. And God's like, hey, settle in. The effects of this are going to be longer than you think. Settle in. In, build houses. Stop thinking like a refugee. Stop trying to get back to where you were and start thinking about how you can participate in what I'm doing. Moving from refugees to residents, right? Because when we think about it being a temporary thing, right, it's easy for us to complain and to fight against what God is doing, but we need to adjust to the new reality because when we finally adjust to the new reality is when life becomes a little bit more tolerable. And following Jesus actually begins to make more sense in the midst of that, right? In, in the world that we, that we live in. Uh, and, and, and here's what I think is so powerful and what he's going to tell us in the very next verse. He's going to make this massive shift and move us into the next heart shift. And he's going to say this to his people. He says, I don't want you just to tolerate it. I want you to embrace it. Look at this in verse 7. Here's what he says. 
He says, but, right? It starts with the contrast, right? So it's not just, I, I want you to do these things. Don't just build houses. Don't just eat, you know, from your garden. Don't just have families. But here's what I want you to do. Here's this bigger piece, this deeper dive down into the human heart. This is what I really ultimately want you to do. And he says this, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And you read that, and let's go, let's be honest, people, that's the hardest part. Right? Because I can tolerate people. If God says, hey, Seth, you're going to be in this for a while, you know what? Uh, you just tolerate it, then I go, great, I'm just going to complain my way through it. But if he says, settle in, and if he says, this is what I really want you to do, I want you to seek the welfare of this city, right? No longer can I just say I can tolerate it because I look at these people and I go, man, I can tolerate these people for one year, two years, three years, but it's an entirely different thing to tolerate people versus love people. It's super hard, and this is absolutely shocking for the people because he says, this, guys, this is not just two cities and two cultures. It's not like God took these people, he put them over here, and they're like, man, their food is not like our food. They wear weird clothes, they talk funny. You know, that's not the case, right? What the problem is is that what God said is he took these people, he took them out of the city where everything was right, everything was comfortable, and he plopped them into the middle of a city to the, the very people that are connected to the destruction of their home and their way of life. And you would think that they have every single right to say vindication, victory, glory for us, and God says seek the welfare of the city that you're in. That's his message, right? It's not just two cities and two cultures, because it is. It's one thing to live among people. It's an entirely other thing to love them, right? He says, I want you to be concerned about these people. And kind of the, the, kind of the narrative for us today is to think about this, is that wherever you are, whoever you're with, in whatever circumstances you're in, you are still my representatives. You are my ambassadors, this is who we are called to be through the command, the mandate of God. And so here's the second heart shift, okay? So not just think about moving from refugees to, to residents. Here's that second heart shift. He goes, stop being miserable and start being missional. Stop being miserable and start being missional, okay? Um, we're going to come back here to the board here uh, for a second, and if you think about this, you know, kind of chronologically, what's going to happen here happens first, here's what happens second, and here's what kind of happens later, okay? So if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible story, right, uh, what we find is, you know, that God creates, you know, everything and, and including, you know, this special garden, and he places Adam uh, and Eve, right, in this space. And there's this fruit on the tree. We don't know what it is. Uh, it's some kind of a, some kind of a fruit, and, and what God does is that he, he makes everything, and, and as the result, right, because there's no sin in the world, right, as a result, the world, the cosmos, the entirety of the universe is in right working order, right? It's perfect. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing out of place. There is zero conflict. So there's zero conflict between Adam and Eve. There's zero conflict between them and God, and there's zero conflict between them and creation. And the way that the Bible describes that is through this word, shalom. 
Shalom is the Hebrew word that we oftentimes translate peace. And it really means the absence of conflict, right? In its simplest form, but in its pure, more pure form, it's this is the way that God designed the world to be, is in shalom. And that's between us and God, us between each other, and that's between us and creation, right? But what happens is that if you turn, you know, a couple pages, or really just a chapter from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, we find that there's this crafty being who enters into the story. Uh, he's known as the serpent or the accuser or sometimes known as Satan, right? He enters into the story, um, and he, you know, tries to flip the, t- flip the tides, right? And what he does... is that he brings in a deception. He says, did God actually say? Right? So, if, by the way, if that ever starts, that's probably a, a good way to recognize a lie. Did he actually say, don't eat this? Right? He brings in the lie. He brings in the deception. And then what happens, right, if you're Adam and Eve, is that all of a sudden that doubt enters into your mind. And you're like, huh, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure what he really said, I don't really even, I'm not even sure if I remember what that meant, even if I even got it right. So out of that comes this desire, right? And they begin to think, gosh, what if, what if this is true? By the way, they didn't know that it was a lie, right? What if it's true that what they said is true, and, and in so eating this fruit, all of a sudden I get to become like God? That's incredible. If you're in their shoes, Every single one of us would have chosen the same thing, right? We can't pretend that we're better or more righteous than them. We, we, with, with, the, with the information that we had in the environment that we would have been in, that's what we would have done, right? And there's this desire. And what happens then is that sin enters into the world. And it's this moment that it's broken and, and the whole thing is turned and flipped upside down. And the shalom of God is now absolutely shattered, that's can't, it's not that it can't be restored, which was part of the story from later, right? But this is what's happening, right? And out of that sin comes the idea of shame, right? And out of that shame spurs fear, right? Because God comes back into the story and he says, hey, Adam, Eve, where are you guys at? And they're like, ah! And they're afraid. And they run and then they hide, which ultimately ends, right? in this idea of scrambling, right? Yep, you get it, you know what I mean, right? Scrambling, which means that they they hide, they run, they flee, they blame, they criticize, right? Like God finally catches them or talks to them, and Adam's like, it's not my fault, it's her fault. She's like, it's not my fault, it's the snake's fault. And it's this weird triangle. And what we find is that in the midst of all of this, we find that now, as a result, this process is that there's massive conflict and chaos in the world, which is the opposite of shalom. Everything is not the way that it's supposed to be. Do you see the contrast? And so when God enters into the store and he's talking to these people, right? It's, it's not, by the way, it's not hard to realize when you start thinking about these why the world is so messed up and why the world is so hard and why my heart at times, if I'm honest, in my own struggles, why it's so hard because all of these things are at play in every single moment and right around the corner at any given moment is the opportunity. 
asking for conflict because this is the core. This is my tendency. This is my heart, right? And so it's easy for us then to see that there's this broken relationship. There's this natural mistrust of other people, right? And there's inside of us, there's almost this visceral response between us and God, right? We get angry. We're broken people. We get angry with each other. We have conflict with each other, and we have this conflict with the world. And what God says is that, guys, by the way, I'm planting you in this city. I'm planting you in the midst of Babylon, way over here. I'm planting you, and here's the message that I want you to bring. Not a message of conflict. Don't make this worse. I want you to point people back to shalom. That's the story. And it's interesting to me that in a book and a story like Jeremiah that is filled with over and over and over with God's frustration with his people, right, because of their idolatry and their injustice, right, so there's wrath and there's judgment. In a book of filled with that, in the moments that there's hope, what does he do? He points people to a pre-sin scenario, He doesn't say that this is going to fix anything. He points them to a time when before sin was an issue, and he says this, I promise you what I'm doing is creating an environment where sin is no longer the issue. That's the story of hope that he asks them to bring right? Then where humans are at peace with God, where they're, pe- they're at peace with each other, and they're at peace with the world, because it's in a space where everything is the way that it ought to be. It's shalom. And what God says is, for my people, in the midst of this worst of case scenario, this worst of humanity scenario, I want you to be a carrier of that message. That's what he says. But not only that, I want you to pray for those people. He says, and pray for the welfare of the city. You see, you know, it's interesting to me is that when I think about prayer, what's so powerful about prayer uh, is that every time I pray, it's a surrender of control, right? Because prayer is this, God, I acknowledge that this story, as much as there's things that I want in this world, and I'd love for you to answer those, but here's the deal, this is your story. It's not my story. And so however you unfold that story, prayer is about me surrendering control to the creator. But it doesn't just say pray for the city, right? It says seek the welfare of the city and pray for the city. Because I know that in my heart, my tendency, it's easy for me to go, yeah, you want me to pray for that person? That's great. I love it. I can do that. That's easy. But I won't touch him with a 10-foot pole. That's just the way that we sometimes are, right? He says, this is the mandate. And I ask this question, how often do we seek the welfare of the city and pray for the welfare of the city? By the way, here's the kicker, okay? The word in welfare in in our English translation here in Hebrew is the word shalom. So when he says, seek the welfare, he says, seek the shalom, seek the peace, point people to that message. That's what you're bringing. And he says, by the way, if you need better motivation, here's the deal. Uh, Your welfare is directly tied to the welfare of the city. So if you want to thrive as a people, in the culture, in the place that you live, it's directly tied to how you treat people where you live. Seek the welfare, seek the shalom. And so here's that third and final heart shift that he invites us into. He says this, he says, stop thinking like victims and start thinking like visionaries. 
Stop thinking like victims and start thinking like visionaries because what he's saying is that I've placed you in the middle of Babylon and what I want to do is build and grow my city in the midst of this city. Which, by the way, is the same thing that Jesus did. He brought the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth and said, I'm going to grow my church from the inside out. I'm going to take over this kingdom, right? So here's where we go back, and as we understand this context, this is where Jeremiah 29.11 begins to make more sense, because it's a very hard, powerful peace for us to reconcile in our hearts. And yet, here's where the hope comes in at the end. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, same word, plans for shalom, and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Guys, there are two really big fulfillments here. One, right, God says your flourishing is tied up into the flourishing of the city. And so he says, once that's accomplished, I will bring you back to where you were for them. And so there was that very kind of short-term future type of fulfillment. But what they didn't understand is that the story continues and that that ultimate shalom, that story to be fulfilled is found in Jesus, is found ultimately in Jesus. And we describe this story it was written for us and uh, described for us in um, the triumphal entry. And so this is where Palm Sunday kind of fits in. And I hope we can see how these stories fit together. Because there's a point in Jesus' ministry um, where he's up in Galilee and he says, you know, the, the scripture says he set his face to Jerusalem. It's this idea of setting his face. And so uh, for us, how we, how we understand that is means that Jesus saw that his time was near. And he said, I have a mission to fulfill. That's what I'm going to do. My mission is to go die on a cross and then ultimately be raised from the dead, right? So Jesus, he comes down from Galilee and he finds himself in this little town called Bethpage. And you can read about this in Matthew 21, right? Uh, and here he is in, in Bethpage. And what he does, this is, by the way, the, the, uh, the Mount of Olives, right? Here is the, the Kidron Valley. And so it's this kind of this steep decline down here, then up the mountain, and then Jerusalem is plopped on the top of this other mountain, okay? So Jesus is over here on the east side uh, of the, the Mount of Olives, and he sends his disciples. He says, go up to the next city and I want you to find a donkey. So he does. They get that. They bring it back to Jesus and Jesus makes his journey. And as he comes to the top of this hill, he would have kind of just reached over the crux of this hill and looking down, he would be able to see Jerusalem. And as he looks at this space, he would know, be so familiar with that people's expectation of salvation was through the blood of animals. Right? And so what does he do? He knows that he needs to die on the cross. So here's how the story unfolds, right? He actually rides his donkey down across the valley, right past this place called the Gihon Springs. And that's significant because this is where Solomon was crowned, anointed and crowned king, who is the son of David, right? And, and Solomon, in his procession, took his father's donkey that was given to him, David's donkey, and he rode from the spring of Gihon down and around through the gate and back up 
into the temple. And so Jesus, knowing this story, reenacts this whole thing, would have gone down right past the spring on the foal of a donkey, according to the Zechariah's prophecy, it comes all the way up and in. And it's in this space as people are lining it, they're looking at Jesus and what are they shouting? Hosanna. And we begin to see the sense of save me, save me, save me, confidence in salvation, confidence in salvation. The entire city, which is 500,000 people, is stirred, saying, save me. And they lay out their cloaks and they lay out their palm branches and they are beyond thrilled that the king is here to save. Only for a week later, Jesus to be hung on a cross. All their expectations are gone because what can a dead man do? But it's in this space that we find that Jesus' mission was to seek not the welfare of the city, but to seek the shalom of the entire world. And the only way to do that was through the cross. And so as he enters in, people were praising him for king, and he became king, but it's not the way they expected And it's through that that we have the forgiveness of sins. And it's this incredibly powerful, powerful story that we finish with, right? And you go, gosh, why does this matter? I want to tell you two things. First thing uh, is that I think that this forces us to rethink Jesus. Because what we oftentimes do is we put all of our expectations on Jesus and we think that that's where we get our deepest fulfillment, right? And for these people, it was not return from the exile where there was biggest fulfillment. The biggest fulfillment in Jesus was the shalom that he accomplished on the cross, and took us back to this pre-sin scenario where he's creating an environment where all of this is dealt with. And it makes me rethink Jesus because of how much stuff is in my life right now. And I'm like, gosh, there's, I know there's lies, there's doubts, there's desires, there's sin, there's shame, there's fear. And gosh, I'm, I'm scrambling, I'm criticizing, I'm blaming, I'm doing all of this. And we can come with confidence to Jesus who says, I'll take your scrambling and I'll give you shalom. It's this beautiful picture. And the last reason uh, I think is this, and I just want to throw this back up here, these three things. It's, it's important for us uh, to rethink where we play, what part we play in this story, because it's not just about us, it's also about the world, right? Stop thinking like refugees and start thinking like residents. Stop being miserable, start being missional. Stop thinking like victims and start thinking like visionaries.